Welcome to Behind the Books, a podcast by the Mercer County Library System. Your hosts are Bob Noose and Anna Vanskoyk. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Behind the Books. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have as our staff guest, Shanna Keynes, who works in cataloging at our headquarters branch in Lawrence. And our author guest is best-selling author Kate Moore, who Anna, we thought would be a perfect guest for this month with it being Women's History Month. And a couple of the books that she has written really hit home with Women's History Month. But how we got that little bug in our ear was from our interview with Caitlin Decker, who I don't know if everyone remembers uh, an episode, a couple episodes back, we interviewed Caitlin from the West Windsor branch, and she was telling us one of the authors that she really enjoyed reading is Kate Moore and her uh, narrative nonfiction style. So I said, hey, let's see what we can do. And Bob Noose works some magic, and we ended up talking with Kate Moore. And she becomes our first transatlantic interview as she was over in the UK when we talked to her. We've gotten Canadian authors before, but I don't know that we've uh, branched across the Atlantic Ocean before for an interview. I think we're going to have to have our fact checkers check on that one because I don't know if that's true, but I'll take your word for it for right now. Well, we will investigate that. And if I'm wrong, we'll let our listeners know at the end of this episode. But for now, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with our chat with Shanna Keynes. Welcome everybody to this segment of Behind the Books where we take time to interview a staff person from the Mercer County Library System. I am super excited today for our interview with Shanna Keynes, who is a cataloger um, in our acquisitions and cataloging department at the Lawrence Headquarters Branch. Shanna, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. So one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you is that I, when I was in library school, I loved cataloging. I absolutely loved really? cataloging. Really? I did. <laughs> I did. See, I, I've never heard that before. <laughs> I did. I love all the rules. I, it was like a puzzle, <laughs> like trying to figure, I know it's, it's, well, that's the geek in me, I guess. No, um, I've heard that from other catalogers, but for, for um, other librarians, I usually hear the exact opposite. <laughs> So did you, when you were in library school, was that your end goal? Did you know that you wanted to go into cataloging? No, when I started library school, I didn't even know cataloging was a thing. Like, I was, um, we had some kind of a talk, librarians come in and talk to students. And one of them was a cataloger. And she told us that, you know, it was a good skill to have since most librarians don't they avoid studying it. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll see how it, I can do that probably. So I did do it. <laughs> I was lucky enough to have the opportunity a couple of years ago to, to come and fill in over there for a couple of days in your department. And I was fascinated by the whole process from, from when the books get delivered until they, they head out to our, to our shelves. Can you talk, kind of talk a little bit about that process and what, what you specifically do in that process? Well, when the books come in, my 
role in the process is, uh, well, you know, when someone looks into the catalog, they look up whatever book they want or DVD or music or CD or whatever, um, and they get all the information, you know, title, author, uh, page number, summary, whatever. I'm the one who maintains and edits and corrects and creates those records. I think it's important to note that with the cataloging, what's so important about it is the consistency, right? Yeah, yeah, that is, um, it is very important. Um, the reason, you know, the reason we have libraries and librarians is because everyone organizes information differently. So you develop these systems so that, you know, if you want to look up something on jungle animals, all the jungle animal books are in the same section. See, that's, I think, what I like about it is that you, I almost feel like in a way you're probably like herding cats because it's not just one library that you're working. I mean, it's one library system, but you're mm -hmm. working with different branches and people have different layouts and everything. So it really is kind of finding the compromise and finding that continuity. It's uh, surprising to some people because cataloging has a lot of rules, like a, a lot of rules, but every rule has like a lot of exceptions. Like I always say, you make... um. You make the rules fit the book. You don't make the book fit the rules. So it's uh it's constantly a push and pull. So you have you obviously you want all the jungle animal books with the jungle animals, but if something's on jungle animals and farm animals and and underwater animals, then suddenly you've got like well where does this go? Like where's it going to be found? What's most appropriate? Like that sort of thing. So there's more nuance than you would expect, but. See, I love that because I think there's a stereotype that it's very regimented. And I do think there is some, um, like you and I think the push and pull is just a great way to put it, that you're going to make it work for your organization system. Yeah. So you started taking classes and is it something, because you were like, okay, this person came in and talked to you about it. And then was it something where you took classes and you really, I guess it's such a it's such a specific cohort of librarians. I mean, are there professional organizations out there for catalogers specifically? Well, when I started, I was um, in the SLA, Special Libraries Association. So it's basically like a catch-all for librarians that do unusual library things. But there is um, the underneath the ALA, there is a, a cohort for specifically catalogers. I cannot remember the acronym right now. Uh, like maybe ALCL or something, something like that. But that makes sense with the special collections because you think about what they're cataloging, yeah. right? Also, yeah, mean, a lot of, and a lot of catalogers work in special collections, like yes. specifically archive. Like when I actually learned to catalog, the first job, real job I had was in an archive. So it was obviously they had very specific needs. Yes, and it's amazing what you can catalog. You can catalog yeah. anything. You can catalog a horse's head. <laughs> yeah, well, when I was um, in library school, you know, at the end, we were all applying for jobs, and there was a library job at, I don't remember where, but it was a zoo, and I remember telling a friend of mine, it's like, maybe I'll get to catalog a tiger. One of the things I like to ask our um, colleagues that we interview is, you know, you're in library school, you're going through it, you're taking all these classes, right, and you're ready to go when you get into your professional job. What is one of the things, or a couple of things, if there are, that has probably been the most surprising to you about working in a library? I think just the variety, because I've worked in an archive. I've worked in, um, I used to work for Baker and Taylor, which is a book distribution company and one of our vendors. Uh, so I've worked in an archive. I've worked in a corporate setting. I've worked 
at Rutgers, which is an academic library. Obviously, I'm working here, which is a public library. Um, it's surprising how well librarians just as a general system work together. Like, um, like my cataloging skills have been able to, like every, all those different places have different needs, but my skills have been able to transfer over whatever we need. It's a very flexible profession. And um, I think that's, uh, like you said, people have an idea of, there's a lot of rigidity in cataloging specifically, but in library work in general, but it's really not, it's really incredibly flexible. Right, we're, we're constantly adapting to the needs of the community. I mean, no matter what the library is, if it's an academic library or special collections, I mean, I think about academic libraries and how much they have morphed and changed over time. Um, and we're, we're right there with them as a public library system, absolutely. Yeah, um, and I think the pandemic proved just how, how good we are, you know, changing with the times. Right, shifting, yeah. <laughs> pivoting when needed, absolutely. Which, you know, you have to be flexible to do that. You can't be regimented. You gotta yeah. be able to, flexible like a gummy worm all over it. <laughs> you find yourself as the as the things come in, are there th in terms of your own reading and, or DVDs or what you what you like to, to do, do you see things come in and you're like, oh, I gotta put that on my list. And now you, next to your desk, you have a list of like, 3,000 things that you have to read or watch as they come in across your oh, desk? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I honestly think everyone who works here has that, but yes, I, I have that too. I know, but Shanna, you're seeing everything, right? I know, <laughs> I know, I do have a, a book recommend, I have a list that's just book recommendations and it's like, it was a mile long before I started working here. Now it's like three miles long at least. Well, Shanna, we appreciate you taking time today. I just think that your job is so important. Um, what you Thank provide, you. Uh, your expertise for us, and I know I have counted on you a gazillion times um, for things I need to do, and you're you're amazing. So I just, I, I'm so excited that you took time to talk to us today and just to let people know um, about this role that's kind of, you literally are behind the books. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah, invisible work. Yeah, to let people know that there is this hardworking, amazing person taking part of organizing our materials for us. So thank you so much. And I appreciate you taking time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, everyone, to the next segment of Behind the Books. Thanks so much to Shanna Keynes for taking the time to talk to us about what goes on in the cataloging department over at the headquarters branch. Anna, I found it pretty interesting that she gets to see everything that comes in. Yeah, I have to say I'm a little jealous, but I do want to follow up. Uh, one of the things that Shanna talked about was a professional organization for catalogers, and she had gotten back to me, and the acronym that she was talking about is ALCTS, and that's the Association for Library Collections and Technical Services. So those of us who are catalogers out there, we have a nice little support group to go to. And I just want to thank Shanna for following up about that. Um, just kind of shows how thorough she is. This month, as we wind up March and head into April, we have the tail end of Women's History Month. We have April with spring coming. There'll be a lot of kids programs geared toward the spring. 
but we do have some good programs that everybody can look forward to coming up that I'm sure you'll be happy to go through for us. Bob, as you said, we're at the tail end of uh, Women's History Month, and we do have a program on Monday, March 28th at 6.30 in the evening. And this is going to be presented by Dr. Erica Ryan, who is Associate Professor of History and the Director of Gender and Sexuality Studies at Ryder University. A lot of times we talk about suffrage uh, with women's history, their uh, fight for the vote. And she's actually going to talk about uh, radicalism and suffrage, winning the vote in the first Red Scare. So it's a kind of a whole nother twist. March is also National Nutrition Month, and we have a guest speaker who is, uh, she's a dietitian and certified diabetes educator from Capital Health, and that is Mindy Komosinski, uh, and she is going to be talking about eating well for your mind and body, which I think sounds really interesting because so many times we think about eating for our physical health, but she's also going to be talking about the health for your brain and your mind. And again, that is on Thursday, March 31st at three in the afternoon. So that's an afternoon program. And both of these programs I've just mentioned are virtual programs where you can go to our website, mcl.org, or to our app, MyMCLSNJ, and you can register to receive the link to watch the programs at that time. I do want to mention one more just because I think this one is pretty important and it, it's something that teens can attend to as well as parents or uh, caregivers. On Monday, April 4th at seven in the evening, we are having a virtual program and it's a guide on how to pay for college. And we have Kira McDonald from my college planning team. She's gonna walk people through a variety of techniques um, for paying for college, as well as to kind of talk about some of those myths that are out there. Uh, everybody seems to have advice and she's gonna kind of help bring the truth to how you can pay for college. So Anna, it's the tail end of March, which means we're right into the thick of it with March Madness, college basketball, NCAA tournament for both the men and the women. I'm sure a lot of people are checking that out. And you can also go to our branches where many of the branches have displays and things geared toward March Madness. It's pretty cute. They'll do um, kind of battles between books and you pick the winner uh, who goes on to the next tier. And I think Bob and I would do better at talking about the books in the brackets than we would uh, at talking about the teams in the brackets because it might come to fisticuffs. So we have to just stick with the literature brackets. We'll stick with the books in the bracket. And coming up next, we're going to have a chat with Kate Moore about some of her writing. And we'll be back with that in a moment. Moore is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Radium Girls, which won the 2017 Goodreads Choice Award for Best History, was voted U.S. Librarian's Favorite Nonfiction Book in 2017, and was named a Notable Nonfiction Book of 2018 by the American Library Association. A British writer based in London, Kate writes across a variety of genres and has multiple titles on the Sunday Times bestseller list. Her latest book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, came out in June 2021. So Kate, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure. It's lovely to be here chatting with you. 
So for one thing, a lot of us have read The Radium Girls and we're familiar with it. And I do want to talk about that um, because I just thought it was a fascinating read. Would you mind, and I realized the woman they could not silence came out in June of last year, but do you mind giving a little like elevator pitch, like what the story is about before we kind of leap into questions with that one? Sure. Um, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. So um, the woman they could not silence is another story of forgotten woman from history. This time it's an individual and it is written in the same style of, as Radium Girls. So it's narrative nonfiction. It's a story uh, you know hopefully a page turning story for people to read even though everything in it is is factual and the woman they could not silence starts on the cusp of the American Civil War in June 1860 and it starts with Elizabeth Packard who's the heroine of that book a 43 year old housewife and mother of six from Illinois lying in bed in her marital home and it starts with a simple question what would happen if your husband could commit you to an insane asylum just because you disagreed with him. That's what happens to Elizabeth because she lives in a time where women, simply for being women, are perceived as likely to go mad. And she lives in a time where husbands have the legal authority to lock their wives up in asylums simply by request and specifically without the evidence of insanity that is required in other cases. But Elizabeth is the woman they could not silence. And the book charts her journey to find that unsilenceable voice. It charts her journey from housewife to historically significant heroine someone who ultimately successfully battles to improve the rights of women and the mentally ill. But make no mistake, though this is a history book, the issues at its heart could not be more modern. And Elizabeth stands for all of us today, women who are silent simply for using our voices, women who were called crazy because of the things that they say. And so I hope that readers will engage with Elizabeth's story not only because it's an incredible piece of history and she is a phenomenal woman in her own right I hope they'll also identify with her and see that the issues I'm writing about in this book are not dead and buried by any means they are alive and well in the 21st century. That was something I had wanted to to bring up too because even though this story is 150 years old as you're reading it I'm thinking to myself these are the kind of things that could still happen today and probably do still happen today. Absolutely. I, I've actually, you know, I, I knew when I was writing it that the issues were still relevant in modern day. That's what inspired me to write the book. But even I've been shocked at the number of readers who've emailed me afterwards to essentially say the exact same thing happened to me in 2017, 2018, 2020. You know, this this is still going on in this day and age. And I, I hope that Elizabeth's story opens people's eyes to the reality of that and sort of haunts them as well about how little has changed actually since Elizabeth's age. It really, there's a shocking element to that, which you've covered. And uh, it, it, this kind of goes along with the Radium Girls is I have, it was a hard read. It was a great read, but I found my stomach turning <laughs> at times. Yeah. And I just, I, I couldn't help but wonder for you, like mentally, like I know writers have to take a mental break anyway, but this is just such, and the fact that they're true stories and hidden stories really for the most part until they've been brought to light by authors like you, like what did, you, and you're probably getting to know the people through the research. I mean, what are you doing for, to kind of take your breaks from this 
this reality that's going on? I mean, I would say I don't tend to take breaks until the project's over. Actually, I'm the kind of writer that likes to fully immerse myself in the world and discover everything and feel everything, you know, try to empathize and imagine what my uh, subjects are going through and experiencing, you know, pouring over their first person records, whether that's court testimonies or diaries or letters to see what they really felt about these things. You know, I particularly with the radium girls that you mentioned, you know, there are some horrific physical um, suffering that the women are going through in that book, you know, quite gory at times for want of a better word. Um, but I was absolutely ruthless, really, in subjecting not only myself, but the reader to some of those descriptions, because for me, I felt that the radium girls went through that. That was their reality. That was their truth. And I didn't want to sugarcoat it for readers. Um, it is hard to read at times. I know other readers who've said they've had to put it down after certain chapters and just, you know, themselves take a breather. But for me, it was really important to sort of... Um, bear witness to what they went through and, and put all of that in the book. And so in terms of me taking breaks from it, actually, I didn't at the time, you know, well, with both the books, I wrote them relatively quickly, but that was because I was totally immersed in the world, you know, for months on end and sort of seven days a week and, you know, hours and hours and hours a day that I just spent in that world. And for me, that was an important part of the process to not take the breather, but to experience it just as my subjects, you know, well, obviously not just as my subjects did, but, you know, the subject didn't get a break. So in writing it and empathizing it and taking the readers on the journey, for me, it's important not to take those breaks, but actually wait until the project is at an end and then sort of take that hat off and put my Kate hat back on and, and become myself again. What about the amount of time, like once you start writing and you're locked in and you're writing, you, you move from point A to, to the end, but just the amount of preparation that you had to do to get to that point to be able to write, because anyone who sees either of the books and looks at all the, all the information in the back and all the research mm -hmm. that you've done for both of these books, it's that must have been an incredible amount of time that took to to get to that point to start to write. Yeah, and it's interesting. When, I remember when I, I think it was when I was writing the Raining Wells, or possibly actually even an, an earlier book. I think it might actually have been a sort of pop biography of a pop band that I was writing. I remember my dad saying that he was always told when he was writing essays and so on that you divide your time when you're writing into fifths, and actually you only spend one fifth of the time writing. The rest is thinking, it's researching, it's planning. And I think that holds very true for me as well. So yes, you're right. The writing's almost the tip of the iceberg, you know, and, and the fun bit at the end. And then all of that uh, sort of apex is just built on this deep foundation of all the research that you've done, uh, you know, the many sources that you've consulted, the plotting that you do beforehand, the the way you piece together the puzzle pieces of history so you realize oh this was happening at the same time and that sort of thing um I love all of that you know seeing those connections as, as you're researching and realizing how the story is forming and then you sort of anticipate bits that you're going to get to in the writing that you know you're going to enjoy writing um but you can't sort of unleash yourself until all of that preparation is done 
just to follow up with that real quick, I love that you've gotten all these library awards, um, just because we probably are like your, we just love that you're doing all this research and <laughs> finding the information. Well, I, I, I love libraries because I couldn't write the books that I write without you guys. You know, you guys are the custodians of all these incredible records and all these amazing gems of sort of little local history books that are only available in your local libraries, you know, and you keep them on the shelves and probably they're not checked out that often. But then a writer like me comes along and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, it's just the book that I'm looking for to bring this world to life. Um, so I'm so thankful for you guys and the work that you do. Um, but also I'm so thankful for the awards that you mentioned. You know, it means so much that experts like librarians have, you know, seen fit to nominate and award my books. Um, any of these prizes, it just means so much. But something to go along with that is just, as you said, it's narrative nonfiction, which I just think would be amazingly difficult to do because when I think of nonfiction I think of me sitting down and writing my report you know and yeah. citing my sources and you've just gone above and beyond and you have just it's an artwork I mean just what you do because it, it is you forget you. that you're reading about a true like real people that, well, that's and really that's the ambition as you know a, a writer in the genre that I'm writing and that's the ambition you want people to forget you want them to think of these historical figures as you know real people in their minds that you sort of you are on that journey with them and everything else is eclipsed and you're you're just in that world and you you know as you say you do almost forget that it's history it's hopefully page turning you know you don't know what's going to happen even though you could you know everyone knows certain things are going to happen but it, you know part of the excitement of reading the book is the journey and, and the page turning narrative um I absolutely adore writing narrative nonfiction and it's just, it's so freeing in a way that you've got all the facts there in front of you and then you can just have fun with the writing in a way, if that, if that makes sense. Because for me, thinking about it, the sort of hard work is done for you. The story is, is, is there, your character is there, fully, fully formed, you know. Um, I had just have to research to, to uncover that, a bit like an archaeologist. And then Elizabeth Packard's steps, you know, fully formed from, you know, the archives that I've re researched her in and there she is you know for me to sort of you know it, it all, all I mean it's not easy but it almost feels easy in a way once you've done all the hard work because you can then as I say just have that freedom and it, it's one of my favorite things that when you've fully researched a scene for example and you know what the weather was like on that day and you know what they were wearing and you know what the courthouse looked like and you know how many steps there were up to the courthouse and you know what was said because you've got the transcript and you know what was feeling because someone's talked about it in a newspaper interview you know you've got all of that in your head and then you can just write it and have the freedom and the pleasure of writing it for a reader to entertain and inform them what was it that drew you to each of these stories uh, elizabeth packard and also the the radium girls is was there something inside of you that drew you to both of these stories so in the case of the radium girls that was just so serendipitous and one of the most amazing you know things that's ever happened to me in my entire life I wasn't a history writer at, at all I was um, a sort of jobbing writer really I was a ghost writer and a writer for hire and um, doing all sorts of different books and I was also directing in my spare time I did a lot of theatre and I googled great plays for women because I wanted to find you know a script that put women centre stage and a play that came back on this random Google search was The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich, which is about the Ottawa, Illinois style painters. And 
I just fell in love with the women from that script and from my production that I put on. And the book came about because I wanted my theatre production to be authentic. So I was reading everything I could find on the girls and realised there was no book that put them centre stage and told their story. You know, there were books about their incredible legal legacy, books about the remarkable science, but nothing about the girls themselves, you know, charting their triumphs and their tragedies and who they were and what they'd sacrificed and what they went through. And I just felt so passionate about them and about their story. that that's why I decided to write the book. And so it was just a, I, I honestly can't explain it. I just feel such a connection to the story. And obviously even more so now having written the book and, you know, spent years on the road talking about it and championing and giving presentations and talks. And I just, you know, there's just some connection that I felt with the story instantly. You know, I literally hadn't even read the whole script before I turned to my husband and I said, this is the play I'm going to direct next. The connection I felt with the story was that instantaneous. With Elizabeth's story, it was almost a sort of topsy-turvy discovery because I decided I wanted to write about the silencing of women through the claim that we're crazy. That's what I decided I wanted to write about first. And then I went looking for a woman in history to whom that had happened. And she wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, going to be from 1860s America. I spent a lot of time in the sort of 1950s and 60s before settling on her as a, as a subject. But the remarkable thing about Elizabeth Packard is she self-published her own memoirs. And once I stumbled on that treasure trove of first person material and heard from her in her own words about what she'd gone through, it was again, just a sort of almost instant connection. You know, the, the night I discovered her, I wrote in my diary, I think this is promising. I think this could be the woman I'm going to write about next. So again, it was almost instantaneous that the moment I uncovered her voice, I knew it was a story I wanted to tell. It's almost, I think one of the things that's so unique about it, and, and it's it's things that we've read about. I mean, with I'm thinking of the yellow wallpaper. I mean, you know, that women were Absolutely, so delicate, yes. right? <laughs> I mean, that was mentioned in my book proposal when I sent it to my publisher. I was like, you know, yellow wallpaper and right, you know, one but, flew over the cookie's nest and the bell jar and, you know, <laughs> right, all these the incredible. It, it's just, and it, it's, it's, faci it's fascinated people for all this time as well, I think, as a, as a subject matter. And certainly I was interested in, you know, going inside the insane asylums and, and really uncovering what was going on at that time. That for me, you know, personally as a reader, let alone a, a writer, was, was one of the things I was fascinated to research. I was going to ask about that because I know for the Radium Girls, like you actually, like you were in Orange, New Jersey and you followed um, McDonald's steps, you know, what she yeah. where she would have walked. Did you do something similar with the woman they could not silence? I did, absolutely. Yes, I followed in Elizabeth's footsteps um at times literally obviously the roads are rather different from 1860s America but wherever possible uh, that's what I did I was able to go and worship in the church where her husband preached um I went and attended a, a Sunday service there which was really special um I went to her marital hometown I actually even managed to get inside the house of her um in-laws you know a house she would have spent countless Christmases and evenings and Sunday lunches um uh, around there it was on the market at the time I was researching so I was able to get in and, and actually look around the house um, 
So a very, very similar experience of um, researching and not only going physically to the locations in the book, including the insane asylum. Um, unfortunately, the building Elizabeth was held in had been knocked down in the 80s, but there were still lots of auxiliary buildings there and, um, you know, abandoned now, really haunting sort of space to go and visit to sort of see these abandoned mental hospitals. And, uh, you know, there's just a few bits of orphan furniture inside that you can see through the windows the paints unfurling from the underside of the staircases as you peer through the windows um a really quite an eerie sort of place to go and and visit um so yeah as well as those that sort of physical research of being you know at these sites I was also obviously you know going to libraries going to museums um interviewing relevant people family members of Elizabeth and so on in order to bring this story to light I have to say there are two amazing books and you can tell, I could tell from reading them and, and even more from talking to you today, how much of yourself you put into both of these projects. Yeah, I think that's really, really important as a, you know, if I'm not passionate about it, then I don't think a reader will become passionate about it. You know, I think it's a, a sort of good thing for any writer to, you know, you need to be passionate about what you're writing about because it does come through in, in the text. Well, Kate, I have to tell you that I just, I appreciate the, the books that you have given us, um, just telling women's history from a perspective that has not been shared. Uh, so it just whatever you are doing, we just wish you continued success. And uh, again, I just think what you're doing is truly a piece of art. So thank you so much. And thank you for taking time to talk with us today. We will make sure to point people to your website so they can learn more about you and your projects. And we encourage our listeners to check out, um, if you haven't already read The Radium Girls, to check that out from the library, or her latest book, The Woman They Could Not Silence. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And as I say, thank you so much to you for everything you do to connect readers with books and all the remarkable gems that you keep safe for writers in the future. Welcome back, everyone, as we wrap up this edition of Behind the Books. Thanks so much to Kate Moore for taking the time to talk to us. And we did hear back Anna from our fact-checking department, and she was indeed our first guest from across the Atlantic. I don't think she'll be the last, but she was the first. I think that is a, a stellar milestone for us though. And that interview, going into it, I was very impressed with the way that she chose her topics, wrote her books, did so much research, and after talking to her, I'm even more impressed by the work that she's done to bring particularly the Radium Girls and the woman they could not silence to us. I said this to her during the interview that I just think she has really is mastering the craft when it comes to the narrative nonfiction work and just the amount of time, and you just touched on this, the amount of research that she does, but then she also literally goes and walks where they were in their shoes to see what were they seeing at that time? What was, what were their surroundings? And I just think that dedication has just produced some amazing work. And we didn't even get a chance to talk to her about some of the other writing that she does. And if people get a chance to go to her website, kate-moore.com, which you'll link to in our show notes, I'm sure, you'll see that she does a lot of other writing as well. Um, but those two books, especially with this being Women's History Month, were what we wanted to focus on talking to her. 
came away impressed with the work that she does. And then we finally got to talk to Shanna Keynes, who has been on my wish list for forever, it seems like. And I think <laughs> she was a little bit shocked when I told her how much I loved cataloging. And I, I, I started to think about that because she just she really was taken aback by that. And I think part of it was the teacher I had in library school was so good um, that I don't know. I just I thought I, I just always feel like it's a puzzle when we're cataloging. And I just think that her job is so unique and so instrumental to the library as a whole. And she really is someone who is behind the scenes and people don't get to see. They see her output. They see what, you know, the books and, and them being, you know, get their little addresses where they live in the library. But um, and I just appreciate what she's doing for the Mercer County Library System. And she, as you mentioned to her while we were talking to her, is behind the books, even more than we're behind the books. She is behind the books. And that wraps up another episode of Behind the Books. It was a pleasure, as usual. Hopefully everybody enjoyed our guests, and we'll be back to do it again in a couple of weeks. We do want to thank Kate Moore again for joining us to chat, as well as Shanna Keynes for taking time out of her day to interview with us. And Bob, I will see you and our listeners back here in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to Behind the Books, a podcast by the Mercer County Library System. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review. For more information about the Mercer County Library System, please visit us on the web at mcl.org. We are produced by Laura Narasik. Our thanks goes out to Kim Livingston for her technical expertise, as well as to Dana Benner for creating our cover art. Your host, are Bob Noose and Anna Vanskoy.